Hey everybody, before this week's episode, I just wanted to provide a brief disclaimer. We did have some uh, significant audio issues this episode. I tried to iron it out as much as possible. Unfortunately, there was kind of a limit to that. Uh, so we appreciate you listening either way, and things next episode should be back up to normal. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Hey guys, this episode we're going to be discussing 2006's Casino Royale, the James Bond film, the 21st century. Uh, we do recommend watching the movie before listening to the podcast. Otherwise, we're probably just going to talk about a lot of stuff that doesn't mean anything to you. So, Mike, what is Casino Royale about? In 2005, The Office redefined comedy, giving us one of the most legendary and incompetent characters in TV history, Michael Scott. Through Michael, it invited us into the world of corporate idiocy with venomous satire and dripping humor. Well... What people have forgotten is that just one year later, its creators set their sights on another major institution of American life in a similarly styled, oft-forgotten, dark comedy, Casino Royale. In it, we're invited into the bananas world of intelligence community through the equally incompetent James Bond, a truly terrible spy who bumbles his way through the bureaucratic and deeply stupid world of modern espionage. Along the way, ruining romantic relationships, breaking countless international laws, losing millions in a high-stake poker game, and getting his balls absolutely pummeled. Producing non-stop laughs as viewers can't help but wonder how someone this stupid could keep his job for so long, tearing apart these agencies in the process. Though lacking the office's relatability, I still highly recommend Casino Royale to anyone looking for a comedy with teeth and a character that despite it all, you can't help but love. Wow, that was beautiful, Mike. Thank you. Uh, welcome, <laughs> welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. Hey guys, once again, welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life, a movie podcast where two film geeks take the films that they love way, way too seriously. Uh, my name's Jonathan Devine. I'm joined, as always, by Mike Overstreet. Hello! And uh, like we said, we're talking about Casino Royale. Casino Royale is the 21st entry in the James Bond series. It was released in 2006 and is essentially a soft reboot of the entire series. Prior Bond films had kind of done similar things because they use the new actor introductions to change aspects of the formula or casting uh, but Casino Royale was by far the most total reinvention of the character it was a huge risk and it paid off uh, pretty well it turns out Casino Royale has a 94% <laughs> on Rotten Tomatoes and it made 615 million dollars on a 115 million dollar budget I did not realize that before I did the research. Uh, this was the highest grossing Bond film ever until Skyfall. Mm. Uh, the real success on that note, the real success of this movie was setting up a string of Craig Bond films that have become like box office titans in a way that Bond movies kind of weren't before. They were always successful, but they weren't like the biggest movie of the year successful, right? Uh, so we started the show usually by talking about our history with the movie in this case, we have a, a dual question because I'm interested, Mike, in your history with Casino Royale. 
I'm also very interested in your history with James Bond. Uh, were you were you into James Bond? Uh, you know, are you now? Do you kind of ambivalent to the character? Do you hate the character? What do you got? Yeah, I would say ambivalent. Um, you know, he wasn't absent as a character in my childhood. I definitely remember. I can't remember what holiday they do the Bond marathon on, but you know, we would throw yeah. we would throw that on. Um, my dad was a lot more into sci-fi, so I feel like the sci-fi series that we usually talk about are a lot more were a lot more present in my childhood. Things like um, Alien and Terminator, Star Wars, Star Trek, and then like the Twilight Zone. So I don't know. It, it's a he's a tertiary figure in my movie upbringing. Um, I have not. Gosh, I don't know. Mm, this might not be something that people are gonna like me for. Uh, not a fan growing up. Uh, still not a huge fan now. I love the Daniel Craig movies, which we'll talk about. But you always have to remember that, like, the most imposing and common Bond figure in my life was Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> and, and those movies, um, yeah, they're just, they're they're interesting. I don't know. I, I need to interject here uh, because we're going to get to my story in a second. And, but this is going to show my hand a little bit. I want to make a distinction between Mr. Brosnan and the films he was in. Yes, because absolutely. I think he was an amazing, he uh -huh. did an amazing job of the old version of the character. Sure. But yeah, the movies got kind of rough. Yeah. They got kind of rough. They Let's did. Just say that. Yeah, I think, um, <laughs> I mean, it's not good when you're like 12 and you're like, this movie's dumb. <laughs> it's just like this movie's made for a 12 year old. Um, but anyway, so I would say that heretically in most people's eyes this was the first bond movie that i ever truly loved you know um sure. i think the older ones were a little too dated for my taste they had a lot of uh, by the time i got old enough to appreciate it dated movies they had a lot of uh problematic issues that then bothered me so there was always kind of something with these films that really was a thorn in my side but i loved casino royale awesome just from the beginning from the get-go you were in yeah Oh, absolutely. And Skyfall is like one of my favorite movies. So um, I really like this rendition of the character. I really like the way that they rebooted, which I know we're going to spend a lot of time talking about. And Daniel Craig is a god. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I just realized we've already talked about Craig in Knives Out. Yeah. Uh, this is the so Daniel Craig podcast. This is the Daniel Craig podcast. <laughs> we swear about I'd Daniel Craig every that, day. Honestly. What else? There's the Golden Compass. There's, oh, uh, God, no. Uh, <laughs> you didn't even say layer cake he's made good movies john he's I, he has he has there's a okay i'm, I'm gonna stop that thing. logan okay. lucky Come i on. get lucky i never saw no logan lucky god get out of here sorry uh i am actually this is one of the few times that mike and i have a very different past with the series because i was a huge bomb kid and i don't know why in a sense because a lot of the different, a lot of the things that come to your mind when you think of the character, like the womanizing side and the like, the the suave side and the and the drinking side, and a lot of those things, I literally just did not pick up on and didn't really have <laughs> anything to do with why I liked the, the series. I was there for the action. I was there for the gadgets. I, I mean, this is it's designed to do this, like to to a young kid, you know, and. But also, I was definitely there for the, like, ongoing series part of it. I don't always get into 
really long running things, but I always like them and I'm always fascinated by them because I want to know all of the little things that have picked up over time. I want to trace like, oh, so this tradition goes back to this movie. Sure and, sure. and you know, this the opening graphic started in the second movie. I like to get into those obsessive little details about uh, series and things like that. And so this was and, and this is just made for that, right? There's there's you know this huge line of films. There's uh, all these opinions flowing around. You know who's the best Bond? Who's what's the best movie? What's the best version of the character? All these different things. So I was in for all of that. I also couldn't help noticing as a kid how bad the movies were in my lifetime. Because, <laughs> uh, and you're right, it is staggering that a a for like it's a sign of how bad Die Another Day is that 13 year old John was not there for it. Because that guy has a low bar, let's say. Yes. Right? Yes. And that movie failed to hit it. Um, yeah, I distinctly, I, I distinctly remember a scene, and I think it's in Die Another Day. Well, it's two scenes. One, he rides a car door or a surfboard yep. or something on a tidal wave. Yep. And then yep, that's Die Another Day. And then when I was like thirteen, I remember the plot of that movie is that. North Korea is using, or a rogue North Korean agent is using a satellite laser beam to destroy a minefield between the two countries. And you're just like, why? I remember just being like, why wouldn't you just laser the cities? Like, what? You have a space <laughs> laser. What? What? Why are we blowing up mines? Reading, <laughs> reading the plot summary of Die Another Day, you honestly feel like you're sick. Yeah. Like there's something physically happening to you that you're like, am I okay? Is this really the world? Am I dreaming? Is everything, what went wrong that I'm reading this and someone actually wrote this into yes. a movie? Yes. It's, it is seriously one of the worst things I've ever seen in a movie theater. Um, and I remember that from like 20 years ago or whatever. So it makes sense that they had a huge, <laughs> they had a lot of work to do leading into this movie. Uh, but yeah, my history with this movie, same as you, I was immediately there. I loved it. Um, saw in theaters a lot. Um, weirdly, I, I have a more, I have more up and down opinion of Skyfall. Uh, we're not talking about that. This isn't the Skyfall episode. I'm sure we'll get there. I do really like it, but actually I, I first hot take of the episode, I like this movie quite a bit more. Mm. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's better. I... I think I always like, I appreciate the ambition of Skyfall and I appreciate that it is saying very interesting things about imperialism and globalization and uh, the role of, it, it's got all this stuff you can read into it and that it works for that and it's really, really good. This movie, I think, does something Skyfall doesn't, which is it's much smaller stakes. If you think about it in this movie, it's only ever money that's ever that we're ever fighting about technically um and the stakes are all the personal relationship side which we're going to get to this as, as we get more into the discussion but i just really appreciate that like this this to me is almost like a perfect encapsulation of a action movie with slightly higher pretension sure uh that succeeds yeah and i yeah. think skyfall is almost like not even trying to be an action movie it's like it's, it's doing so many other things that I just think of it as almost a different thing. Uh, I don't know if that makes any sense, but uh, all of that to say, though, I do really, really love this movie. Frankly, I kind of forgot about how much I liked it until the rewatch. And sure. I, like, Man, I used to watch this movie a lot. Yeah, yeah <laughs> um, me too. But yeah. 
I mean, with that, like, we might as well just just launch into it. Let's right? get into so, it. Uh, we have a few different kind of categories of what we talk about. We're going to start with uh, why this movie works. We're going to get into maybe what holds the movie back. Then Mike and I have some stray thoughts to trade. And then finally, in the second half of the show, we're going to basically go into some essays that we've each prepared, diving more in depth on some specific part of the film. Before we get to that, though, we're starting with just why this movie works. Uh, I have four actors I want to talk about. Yeah. And frankly, the actors are are almost the principal reason why this movie works. I mean, they're not really, but they are. I couldn't see it working without these four people. One of them is maybe, I'm kind of pushing it, but the three certainly you definitely need. Sure. We're going to start, and we've already sort of done this, but we're going to start by talking about our boy, Mr. Craig. Uh, Bond, not blonde, as the hashtag read in 2005. Um, what a bad take. Daniel Craig, what a, well, and, and I was even, you know, this was my straight thoughts, but I'm just going to give it now. My exhibit one and two in why fans of a series are usually the dumbest people to ask about the future of the series is uh, Daniel Craig as Bond and um, Heath Ledger as Joker. Yeah. Both of those casting choices were met with wild derision from fans who, again, are idiots uh, for for extremely dumb reasons. Everyone uh, was like really against it. Do you know, by the way, there's a website that is still up called Daniel Craig is not Bond, I think dot com. Mm. Um, that is an entire site dedicated to hating the fact that Daniel Craig is James Bond. It started in the lead up to this movie, and it was pretty popular relatively at that point with fans. Um, as soon as this movie became a success, they, those people kind of transitioned into uh, wild-eyed, earth, flat-earther kind of vibes, right? Sure. Like yeah. there's four posts you can find of like, like trying to trying to claim that this movie wasn't successful and stuff like that, you know, and it's like, huh? Good the luck. Made $615 million. Way to be on the wrong successful. side of history. This is, yeah, this but is... they're, they're doubling down, which I always appreciate. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Daniel Craig is just amazing in this movie. The thing I wrote down, and I'll, I'll pass it to you because I've been talking a bit, but the thing I wrote down is that uh, compared to other Bonds, Craig is just a real versatile actor yes uh, the other james bond some of whom i really really love okay but most of them kind of i don't want to say coasted but but they 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 played the role with just over the top charisma and then occasionally like maybe a little moment of some real emotion yeah and that was all they needed to do to be fair that's all the movies asked from them sure but craig's bond he has to sell you know brutishness and and charm and rage and coldness and and being hopelessly in love he has to sell all of that in this movie it's a pretty hard role but he nails it absolutely every beat of the movie he's completely there he's completely you buy everything about the character and about his portrayal of the character i just think it's incredible and it couldn't have worked without him yeah no i mean i think it's it's an easy point to make that one of the successes of this film is that it is the uh, most or it's the best cast film of the Bond in terms of talent, sure. in terms of like what is Mads Mikkelsen doing in this movie? Right. Um, what in same with Daniel <laughs> Craig, where you're like, these people are so overqualified and that works so well because it brings such a level of depth to the performances that, like you said, most of the other Bonds are, are I mean, they're just they're hitting one note. 
That's it. They're, they're, whether it's charisma or charm, whatever you want to call it, they're not really asked to do anything other than to be a one-trick pony in most of these movies. And, and Daniel Craig brings such a nuance and such a complexity that I'm not even entirely sure is written into the script. A lot of it is just his performance of the facial expressions he has, or like you said, the quiet menace and the way that he delivers lines and the way that he he holds himself. Uh, when I was watching it, really two things struck me. One, it's like you said, it's acted with a perfect balance of charm and menace. Like there are so many scenes in this movie where he is just menacing, um, imposing, terrifying at times in terms of like, oh, this this guy's yeah. a wild animal. Um, and could cause serious harm if his temper overcomes his calm in this scene, right? And then the other one that I also think is kind of underrated and that really stands out in this film is he might be the first Bond actor that is actually truly a physical action star where it's not just that he's good looking, it's not just that he's fit, it's that he has a, there is a, he has an athleticism and he has a, a style of physical performance that makes him kind of, it reminded me of like Keanu jumping into John Wick. We were like, this guy's doing his own stunts. This guy is actually doing a lot of these things that bring such a sense of realism to the performance. So those are the two things that jumped out about the performance, but I think it's easy to say that he is the best actor to ever play this role. Yeah. And it's, and it's been really funny real quick. We'll get to the action stuff in a second, but I think that was a great point. Um, it has been kind of funny watching him grow to maybe deride this entire character, or not deride, what's the word I'm looking for? To He seems to kind of hate this role that he's stuck in now. That could be part of the whole contract negotiation game, because he keeps signing back on. Um, but every time his negotiation comes back up, he goes into this whole thing, I'm not going to do the role anymore, I'm sick of it, I'm done. And then, of course inevitably five months later it says you know you know craig signs for another two bond films for undisclosed amount yeah and right. you can only yeah. imagine yeah how much that guy is is picking off of this series it's gotta be it's set him up for a while i assume i think um, so him and his kids and grandkids and great grandkids uh but yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's it's he is a real actor being brought into the role. You already mentioned him, but the next actor I had listed, uh, Mads Mikkelsen, my boy. No. Oh. Uh, the funny thing is, okay, he doesn't have a lot to do in this movie. No. <laughs> I actually thought one of the one of the things that I weirdly like forgot about this movie is that Mads Mikkelsen, first of all, he dies with half an hour left. Yeah. And. And like a Even punk in the first, <laughs> yeah, like he just kind of gets killed and he's yeah. just gone. Yeah. And, and even in the first two thirds of the movie, also this is a long movie, which we'll get to later. But in the first two hours of the movie, he kind of he doesn't. Again, he doesn't have that much to do. The only scene that he really gets to be like really out and out evil, having fun with it, is the torture scene right before he gets killed. Yeah. But he still lands it just because of his presence. So in a yeah. way, I think it's cool because he doesn't. He takes so little and just runs with it. Um, yeah, the word... the word, He just looks evil. The yeah. word that I had was smug, where he has this way of of, yes. of a, a aura of arrogance, of just like entitled, I am better than you, that just radiates off of him just sitting at the poker table. And yeah, yeah, yeah his presence in this film uh, is, is like 
I don't know. It's like a vibe almost where it's like every time he's in the room, he just creates a feeling about his character, which is him being a phenomenal actor. Cause like he said, he, the script doesn't really give him a ton of, of stuff to do, but he still crushes it. Um, and I also love, I mean, I should also say that other than Sam Rockwell, this is the other fan club I'm at the head of is the Mads Mickelson <laughs> fan club. Like another round was like my favorite movie from last year. I, I love this guy. Um, and he does such a good job. The villain is really dope. You know, I love that they have the weeping blood, the scar, the, you know, the thing he does flipping chips is something I think I tried to do in college. Like I tried to learn how you do that. Yeah, but you always end up failing. And <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh yeah. God. But yeah, he's great. He's, the, he's, he's a, he's a The weeping a blood thing is so, such an understated villain thing for Bond films. Yes. And just to go back real quick, it's, that's another exemplar of this movie's restraint compared to prior Bond films. But it works, and it's it is so like kind of creepy, but kind of believable. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite shot, one of my favorite shot of Mickelson in this movie, is when that last poker hand plays out, which we're gonna get to later. But when that last poker hand plays out, and he's just staring at the table in overwhelming rage. Yes, and his eyes starts bleeding out. And you're like, God, that looks so cool. Yep. Man, that guy is such a good evil villain. Well, and he does an amazing job. And again, if just a shout out a scene, the scene where he beats Bond and he flips over his cards yeah. and basically his face is just like oopsie. And it's just like you wanna punch him in the face. Like you imagine Big Bond and you're just like, <laughs> This smug son of a bitch. Like I just wanna hit The him. way that he he flips it over and it's just the top card, which he doesn't win on. And he's like, oh, oops. And he's like, oh, but wait, what's what's that beneath that card? <laughs> yeah, dude. What a what a dick move, but it's so good. It You're is. You're like, yeah. Oh, man. I love that scene. Um, we're going to get to the poker later <laughs> for, for a lot of reasons, but yeah, that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're, we're on the positives right now. Uh, so, yeah, Mads Mikkelsen's great. I have two more actors I want to talk about. Eva Green is amazing in this movie. Mm-hmm. And it's weird because I look... I felt like I haven't seen her in anything else. And I looked it up and I was like, well, she's done a lot of stuff. But it, it frankly, it just doesn't seem like, I don't want to be rude about her career. It doesn't seem like the same level. Yeah. Frankly, a lot of it's just kind of like whatever movies. Um, but this was, you didn't I like, think, just you didn't an like incredible the, performance. You didn't like the Dumbo remake? I didn't, you know what, my I didn't go for the Dumbo remake, and it seems like it was made just for me. I know. I've been saying for years, <laughs> when's Disney going to redo Dumbo live action? Yeah. I'm still, yeah, yeah, it, but it didn't land, I'm, I'm sorry to say. Uh, the thing, the only real thing I wrote here is the chemistry between her and Craig is just unreal. Yes. And partially that's acting, or sorry, excuse me, partially that's writing, but they sell that relationship so well. And that relationship, I think, is the key of, actually the biggest thing why this movie works. Again, we'll get to that in just a second. Um, But she just does an amazing job. Yeah, no, I agree. I think she's another, it's another example of an actress that's probably too qualified to be a Bond girl or to play the role that she's been cast in this. Um, And I think that's really, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what to say about it. I think she carries a level of, emotional depth and and interest that a lot of these characters don't i think um yeah talking about her career you know you just look at it and she's one of those people who probably made a couple bad choices with film and then got sucked into television because she was in penny dreadful for a very long time which was a hit show so it is it is kind of disappointing that she hasn't done more because you see in a movie like this that she is a very 
magnetic actress. She is a actress capable of multitudes in terms of depth and interest. And obviously she's very attractive too um, because they cast her for a Bond film. And we'll get into that with what doesn't work and how this movie, despite its desire to be different, still does some of the same stuff. Um, you know, one of the things I did write about her character is that, you know, there's one, I greatly enjoyed a number of specific scenes, like when Bond and Vesper are psychoanalyzing each other. And I do really enjoy the willingness to put a character up that goes toe to toe with Bond in terms of wit as a female character. That is not common in these movies. And I also really like that they make her, you know, they actually play with, they use her acting ability to play with some of our expectations. Cause like when he wakes up from being knocked unconscious and she like immediately falls in love with him and it almost feels like she's falling into the classic Bond girl role. Like I was rolling my eyes the first time I saw this movie. I'm like, oh, you did all this complex stuff with this character and now she's just a Bond girl. But they're doing that to set up the betrayal and her complexity and the fact that she has complex motives, right? So I, I, I like a lot what they do with the character, but that character only works because of her performance. I agree. I'm completely there. And and because of the other actors working with her and creating that those relationships. Um, I have a lot to say on that, but we're going to get to it in a second because I want to finish up the actors with just yeah. one more. And this is real brief, but I just want to say I've had Jeffrey Wright's talk yeah! for a really long time. <laughs> yeah. And, and to big, and it's also worth saying, like to big James Bond heads, it was so cool when he was like, I'm Felix Leader, and you're like, oh, they got him in there. That's I don't know if you know that's a classic that is. Bond character. He's existed forever as a CIA okay. uh, operative who works with Bond. Um, so that was a cool thing for the fans, but also he's just and he has all of like two scenes in this movie. But I just love Jeffrey Wright, and I, I was there for Westworld. I think yep. he's almost yep. the best part of Westworld. Um, so yeah, I just want to shout that out. I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but no, I, I just need to, I just need to do do right by my boy. Yeah, I, the only two other two actors I had down was, you know, I, I always loved Judy Dench. She's just bet the best. She has that much in this movie, yeah. but I love her. Well, it says quite a lot that they when they rebooted the series, they got rid of every single actor because there was yeah. an actor for every one of these characters for Money Penny, for Q, for uh, Felix Leader. There's all this storied history of Bond, and they jettisoned all of that except for J- Judy Dench. Yeah, that says a lot. I think that, absolutely, that, and that was a good decision. Yeah, and she does more in in Skyfall than this. But every time she's in this, you're either laughing or you're you're feeling the weight of the stakes of the movie. And it's almost always yeah. how she is either talking down to Bond or playfully bantering with Bond. Um, but other than her, I wrote Jeffrey Wright is one of the best character actors of our generation because I love that. Theme. I love Jeffrey Wright, man. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm there. Okay. Uh, this is my biggest point of why this movie works, and I don't even know how much we're gonna get. We're gonna talk about this because, in a sense, I don't know how much there is to say. But it's a good story, yeah. and that's a much more small scale what works than what we normally do, or or maybe even the opposite. It's too broad. The thing I want to point out, um, I, I've referenced film crit Hulk on this podcast before. He's a he's an online uh, writer about film and, and uh, all this. He does all these great pieces, and he did this really, really long piece about Bond, where you actually went through every movie. I considered sending it to Mike, but I do. He would just throw oh, it back yeah. in my face. I'm not going to read that. I'm not going to read that. A mini, almost like a mini novel about going through every single Bond. About film. movies I haven't um, seen. 
can't wait to put on movies he hasn't <laughs> seen. Uh, one thing he points out, though, is, and I think is is very true, and most people don't realize this, is that, and actually this is also why I kind of maybe don't think Skyfall qualifies as a great Bond movie. A, a The great Bond movies are at their core romances, mm. which is weird. You don't think of that. But it's actually true, and you can you can pull out two or three films that follow the same beats as as a tragic love story. There's actually several of them, and they are always the best. And this movie is almost the capstone of that. Where the reason this movie works is because it's actually secretly a love story and a tragic love story. Um, I think that obviously we, we there's things to say about portrayal of women. I, I think it does things that. Uh, are certainly better than previous Bob films. It still has some issues, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But that core relationship works, and you buy it, and you buy the way that Bond changes as a character over the course of the film because of his interaction with this person, right? Because of his relationship with this person. Yeah. And it, for me, it still hits at the very end when she, um, you know, is is in the elevator and doesn't want to be rescued and just wants to die because she feels so ashamed of what she's done and in a way those are all pretty normal plot points i mean this is basically it's actually really just a film noir and it's and she's a femme fatale yeah and um and i mean this is we'll get to this in a second too but this is a a bond film that's also based on an ian fleming book so it's it's for the first time like 20 years so it makes sense that it's a pretty classic story. But again, I think that works to, for its favor. I, I think that makes it compelling. And, and you know, we're going to talk about the action. We're going to talk about all these other little things of why this works. But I think the core of why this movie works is that that relationship you're in on and the what it does to the characters, I think, still, still lands and is still emotionally resonant. Uh, so yeah, this movie works because it works. I guess is what I'm saying. But <laughs> wow! I don't know if you have any thoughts. Great on commentary, it, I think John. That's the, I know, right? I, I'm a master at this. Can you believe we've done 18 episodes or 17 <laughs> episodes? Um, yeah. But I don't yeah, know if you have yeah. thoughts on that. That's my main thing, though. Is I'm like, it's just works because of the relationship. Really. Yeah, I think the most understated, or at least un- under discussed, part of this movie in terms of its ambition is that it chooses to tackle. Um, I guess you would say the formational wound of Bond. Like it, yeah. its central premise is actually a pretty complex idea, which is like, what was the core event that jacked this person up and made him the way he is? Like we all have something like that. And that's just a largely, it's been discussed, but it, I don't think the ambitiousness of choosing to do that in a movie like James Bond really gets the credit because that can go sideways in so many ways. You can make Bond too fragile. You can make it um, in a, some ways just seem unrealistic. But I think the most dangerous part of it is that it could just feel fake. Like you could try to be like, yeah. look at this moment when he got broken. And if you don't buy their relationship and you don't buy that, he would actually say goodbye to this life to be with this person, then them heightening the focus on the wound that takes place in this movie would just seem silly. Right. Um, yeah. And honestly, the films that would come after, you would just hope that they go back to him being a normal Bond and they just forget that this subplot ever happened. So, yeah, the effectiveness of the storytelling and of the actors involved and all that is that at the end, you buy that this is the turning point of his life. You buy that this is the thing that really jacks him up, like that breaks him. And that is a compelling thing to what you said of 
you know, I, I would question whether I would call the other Bond movies romances, or maybe I would just question their vision of romance. Um, Notice whether... I said the the good other Bond movies. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is where I don't, I don't want flex, but uh, you'd be surprised. There's, in fact, one of, I was going to say this point later, but this is a straight thought. This movie is actually very close, so you will never have seen this and possibly never heard of it, but there's a Bond movie called um, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is uh, famous for being way too emotionally resonant for a Bond movie. In that movie, he gets married and his wife gets killed. And that's the last shot of the movie is him crying over her gravestone. So I would push back on that. I would say like more than once, the series actually does kind of tackle some of these things. Now, I'm not going to say that it's always done it as as elegantly as it does in this movie, but... They do. Go ahead. John, we, we have different viewpoints on some things. You know, I see women as fully fledged human beings okay. and you, you see them as okay. objects of sexual gratification. It's okay. We have a disagreement. It's okay. fine. Let's just let's, move on. Let's calm down um, a little bit. But back to the point, which is, yeah, it, this movie doesn't work as a story if that central romantic love story does not land so effectively by the end. Yeah. Totally agree yeah, with you. Absolutely. Um. I'm just going to breeze through a few of these, and if you have comments, uh, yeah. weigh in. Uh, but I just have a couple small ones. The theme song is amazing. Mm-hmm. I just want to call that out because uh, what I wrote is 15-year-old Jonathan had this thing on every iPod mini playlist he had. Uh, <laughs> you know it slaps. It, was just, it just kills. <laughs> it's so good. And I don't know if I, I still I, I forgot about it, and I'm watching the movie, and I'm like, this is a great theme song, man. Chris yeah. Cornell, um, yeah, did an amazing job. Uh, we didn't talk about this, and I actually feel like I, I shouldn't have left it out, but this movie is directed by Martin Campbell, mm-hmm. uh, who has a unique distinction of saving the Bond series twice. He um, he made GoldenEye as well, which was another situation, not quite as dramatic as Die Another Day, but the previous Bond film, I believe License to Kill, uh, was real bad. Uh, even though Timothy Dodd's amazing, but it was real bad. Martin Campbell swoops in, new Bond, Pierce Brosnan, makes GoldenEye, uh, revitalized the series, sets up Brosnan's old, whole career with Bond, which unfortunately goes south pretty fast. Uh, but it's, it's just fun to me that it's like they bring him back uh, to reset it again, and he kills it again. And it's a very different kind of movie, so it doesn't even make sense to me that he made those two. Those were his only two Bond movies, by the way. I know, Gordon yeah. And, I and yeah, and, and this movie. Well, it's he, just weird. He's so funny. It, it's a good job. He's a funny director in terms of like my childhood because the, I actually watched a number of these movies he's made like a million times and none of them are any good. Like I watched Mask of yeah. Zorro so many times as a kid. And then the other one was... <sighs> The other one was vertical. You don't got to hate on the Zorro Sorry, movies. it's not so bad. We, we it's not bad. Little, it's not bad. If they're not bad, yeah. Keep the it. other one was Vertical Limit, which is bad. <laughs> That's a movie about... <laughs> vertical Limit's so trash. It's so bad. Oh, and I God. watched it so many times as a kid. It's so... I'm not even sure why I've seen that movie, but it's so <laughs> Everyone bad. Everyone saw I've seen it. <laughs> it was a big movie, but uh-huh. man... I forgot how much I hated that. When, when are we doing the vertical limit pod? We're I mean, Bill, pa- Bill Paxton's in it. It's worth it's worth talking about. <laughs> I swear to I swear to God, we can do it, but it's the last episode of this podcast. I'm quitting. Like we're, we got to keep that one in the back pocket because whenever we're out, I'm just gonna let's just do vertical limit. And I'm not gonna rewatch it either. I'm just gonna read all the media and talk about it. 
Uh, oh boy. But yeah, he's a weird guy. Yeah. And, and I don't know where this movie came from, but I don't either. More power to him, honestly. Yeah. yeah. Especially when you look at the um, other stuff he's done where you're like, I don't I don't see this emotional depth in it. I, I don't know. It's just a strange and it's so different than Goldeneye, too. It's just a strange yeah. film to have come out of this guy who then immediately after goes and makes the Green Lantern movie, which is trash also. Yeah. And you're like, I don't yeah. know. I don't know. It's strange. But he did a great job here. Um, yeah. Relatedly, the action is really, really, really good. And yes. I don't think I remember this either. I don't know why I like kind of forgot this, but uh, it's almost all... And, and, you, and this is where actually you can most clearly see the reaction to the previous film. Mm-hmm. We were talking earlier, Die Another Day was a CGI bloat fest. It looked horrible. Every stunt was ridiculous. Nothing looked real. It was just such a bad action movie. And this movie is so the reverse of that. It's I forgot how practical and grounded everything is. There's almost yes. no... I have an eye for this kind of thing. I can't... It's so hard to pick out the CGI in this movie. There is a bit of it, but I think most of it was just like cleaning up practical shots, you know? Mm-hmm. Removing a wire or something. Because almost everything just feels so so dirty and gritty and real and 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 like that opening chase which i actually think goes on a little too long but it's still really you're invested in the whole thing and that last shootout in the sinking house looks so good yeah what a set piece it's just so good yeah the sinking city i don't know if you have any thoughts on that yeah the sinking city is just a super cool set piece um and the shootout obviously around it is really well well filmed it's very chaotic it's very urgent but I, i you know Maybe the opening action scene goes on a little too long, but I I still think it's one of the coolest. I think it might be the greatest action set piece in Bond history and maybe the best action scene or one of the best action scenes in movie history. I think it is just I remember watching it for the first time and I was like, this movie is going to be straight fire. Like this movie is going to be amazing because, you know, the entire part where he's going up on the construction equipment and I'm. I'm not afraid of heights. I'm terrified of heights in that scene. And yeah. And like you said, it looks real because it looks like the camera is actually there looking down, you know, 15 stories or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and they shoot, they very much adopt, you know, not the born shaky cam, but they adopt a very born style kind of motion to the fist fighting in the action. That does feel like it's actually something that could happen. Um, obviously there are still some inhuman parts to that scene where you're like, well, he just died right there or he has <laughs> broke eight ribs or shattered his legs or whatever. But even those things, they don't take to an extreme degree. Like there's a couple moments where I'm yeah. like, nah, that's, he's probably dead. But for the most part, it felt real. It felt, and, and it was also such a fast pacing that you move past that pretty quick as he continues to chase. Um, yeah. so yeah, no, I mean, I would say those two set pieces are Two, definitely two of the best action scenes in Bond history. And the first one, like I said, I would put up there on a Mount Rushmore of action sequences in movie history in general. Completely agree. I also want to shout out the car flipping. Yes. Uh, oh, my gosh. Which is real practical effect. Oh, it actually feels real. Flipped. I don't know if you know this, but they when they planned it, they did not intend for it to flip that many times. Uh, they didn't because of the way I, I guess I, I've never done it. It's difficult to plan that, so they didn't know. But they they were like, it should flip probably four or five times and come to a rest. It flips, I think, seven or eight times, and it really does that. A guy really drove the thing. Obviously, they had safety gear and stuff, but he really drove the thing and made it flip. 
uh, you know, all those times. And it looks so good. It's, it's unreal. Um, I don't want to turn this into John's problem with Skyfall, but just really quick. Stop. Skyfall fails at this miserably. Stop. Um, I hate every single time. I hate the stupid train thing. I hate how none of the none of that stuff makes any sense. We're not talking like about Skyfall. <laughs> what he? Okay, we're not talking about Skyfall. But that's 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 trash. And I think over time, people will maybe come to realize that you are the, the better are, parts of the movie. You, you know, are derailing our vertical limit pod right now. And it's very upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I actually didn't know he made vertical limit. How that's, many, that's how many practical effects do you think are in vertical limit? Okay. We need to move on. Okay. We're, we need to we're, move done. On. we're done. We're done. Okay. Um, I just have one more and we've kind of been saying this a lot, but I just want to put it into words because it's important. The movie has relatively low stakes. And I think that I always am a fan of that with uh, like action movies and stuff. Again, it's a reaction because the previous Bond movies had really gotten into saving the world kind of shtick. Uh, the only thing at stake here is, the only thing at stake in the whole movie is money and personal relationship. And that works so well. I, yeah. I just love that in a movie where I'm like, yeah, those are real real things that would happen. I, it, I don't buy that Bond is trying to stop a super virus from getting released or a death ray from vaporizing the water around Korea or whatever that movie is about. Mines. Uh, I don't Mine buy those fields. things. And even the good old Bond movies like GoldenEye always had over the top, you know, things where it was always, and it was always the end of the world. And so I'm just yeah. so happy that it's very small stakes. Yep. Um, so that's, that's all I got. I got more things later in like straight thoughts and stuff, but do you have anything else for why this movie works? Yeah. Um, kind of related to that you know and I, we've been talking about this in various forms kind of in a number of different ways but i just want to reiterate that i think it's it is it is a perfect transition from old to new bond and it's a really effective yeah. it's a really effective at at blending old school bond in this new modern like iteration of it um and that's a kind of a classic example he's still bond but it's not the end of the world right there's just like a number of things that this film does where it introduces something that's radically different from the Bond franchise, but then it uses kind of like an old piece of James Bond history, almost like as a magnet to bring it back every so often to kind of like comfort people to be like, hey, it's still the movie that you knew and love, right? It's still the character yeah. that you know and love. And I think that's really effectively done. I wrote down just a couple of elements, you know, the opening scene is a perfect example of this where it introduces Bond with a level of brutality that is uncomfortable if you've seen old Bond films. That like, when he's when he's shoving the guy's face in the sink, that's yep. still that's still rough. Yep. That's still I'm like, oh jeez. It is brutal. Like it is absolutely stunningly violent. But then it kind of claps or goes back to the classic Bond where the bad guy has a gun, but there aren't bullets. And he has that line where he was it. How did he die? And Bond says, your contact, not well, which is just like a, a classic <laughs> Bond over. line. Right. Yeah. So yeah. It, it does this. And then it's also obviously black and white. It's stylish, but it's cutting back and forth between that brutality and the Bond that we've always known. And I think that's really smart if you're going to so dramatically change a franchise. And then obviously it cuts straight to the opening credits and the classic Bond theme. So, you know, there's stuff like that. Really like that scene. 
Yeah. Um, we already talked about the Bond villain, how he's not the top dog. He's actually kind of an F up, but he still has like the branding of a Bond villain, which I think is good. One of the most interesting parts of this movie, I think, is Bond's character, like moral character, where he's still charming, mm. but they are way more explicitly talking about him as a morally flawed person. And obviously, like moral grayness isn't new to the Bond series, but the extent and the strategy for depicting how deeply kind of sociopathic this guy can be is very yeah. different. It's not as subtle. It's kind I mean, it, it is subtle, but it's it's kind of in your face that this dude is a quasi monster at times. Right. Well, they even and I, I love the scene where they she Vesper and Bond talk about this explicitly. right? Yeah. Where she says, how do you. you do you not feel anything from that? And he says, I wouldn't be good at my job if I did. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's true. If your job is killing people, then it'd be bad if you felt the weight of killing them. Uh, but he himself comes to recognize, well, maybe that's kind of a cross I don't want to bear. And of course he decides to bear it. But, you know, you're right. I think that's a, it dives into his psyche in, in a way. Uh, we're going to get to this with the essays later, but fascinatingly also, in a way that's closer to the original incarnation of yeah. the character. But uh, but yeah, you're right. I, I think it's great. Well, yeah, I mean, it's another, probably one of my favorite lines in the movie is, you know, they have this entire poker set piece, which is classic Bond. And then when he loses and he's he just goes to murder him and he just says, get the girl out, which is like one of those lines I remember from the first time I saw it, where you're just like, yeah, he is just about to kill this guy with a steak knife. Like he's just going to walk up to him and murder him because he lost a yeah. poker hand. That's not really classic Bond. There's a level of, of of just, I don't know, like I said, it's almost animalistic instinct kicking in that is very unsuave. It's very unsophisticated. It's it's going yeah. back to, it's brutal, right? So, yeah. Um, and then obviously love that the gadgets are still high tech, but not over the top, you know, nice suit, gorgeous car, silence yeah. pistol. And then the last one I had about that kind of gravity of the old Bond is that they do just enough, and this can go so wrong in movies, but they do just enough winks at old Bond movies without being distracting, right? So absolutely love when he tells Vesper that her fake name is Broadchester or when he yeah. creates his classic drink and he's thinking it needs a name and all that stuff. That That is a really good job of being like, we acknowledge the shift we're asking our audience to make and how we think of this character but we're not going to leave them in the ocean without a life draft. It's funny you say that, though, because I actually think uh, uh, the perfect example of that, which is also sort of a, a safe version of it, a subversion of it, is because uh, his classic drink is actually, the, that's a drink he makes up that he calls the best, but it's still a great moment. His classic drink is the martini shake and not sure. stirred. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but it's such an important moment, actually, I think, for the character when right before he, he takes the knife and he's going to go, you know, just kill um, Hans Mickelson. Um, he orders the martini and the waiter asks, shaken or stirred, and he says, do I look like I give a damn? Yes. And that's oh, a great so signal to the people who know the character of like, this character, we're playing with it. It's still the same. He's still James Bond, but it's a little different. Yeah. He's got a little more of an edge to him. Old Bond would never have done that. Would have made a point of the shaken thing. But uh, but yeah, you're right. It's a great, it's a great way of updating the character, right? Um, Absolutely. Uh, keeping certain things of trashing other things. I think it's it's fantastic. Anything else? Yeah, I got three quick ones. Uh, we are going to no doubt hate on the poker scene, some aspects of it in this movie. <laughs> but I think the poker scene 
is particularly effective in terms of how it's shot. I think they do a really yeah. good job of actually making the game feel engaging, which is like really hard to make to shoot a card game. And they do a good job of also breaking it up with action sequences, like the stairwell fight with the warlord, right? Um, yeah. That's just smart filmmaking. Uh, it's probably strange to say this, but this is the most fun torture scene I can remember in a movie. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. don't get me wrong. Watching it hurts me physically every time. <laughs> like, usually in torture movies, like Saw and stuff, I'm like, this isn't real. I, like, felt myself getting whacked in the nuts repeatedly. Yeah, you're, you're so... like, ooh, ooh, uh. And there's actually... But Craig sells it. He makes oh, it so yeah. much fun, which is a weird sense to use. But, yeah, he's uh, that's the biggest laugh. I remember this. In the theater. Oh, the yes. The biggest laugh is what he says. Now the whole world's gonna know that you don't scratch your fucking balls. Well, that's a great one to, uh it's just like i yeah but you're right it's it's a scene in the theaters where i remember the whole audience dying um yeah and then uh the last note i had was the final scene is baller the name's J- bond james bond so well built into the film yeah so first time he says it in the film goes back yeah. to that call calling back yeah it's great it's great uh cool uh, we're going to take a quick break and then come back with some thoughts of maybe what holds the movie back and some stray thoughts. Hey guys, welcome back. So next up we have what holds this movie back. Frankly, I don't have that much, but Mike and I have each prepared a few thoughts. Uh, we've been... Frankly, we were just talking about it, so let's do it. The poker in this movie is insane. <laughs> it's, it's, and it's, just think for a second. The fact that I'm saying in a movie where, you know, all of these different things happen that, frankly, we were saying earlier, he couldn't survive that jump. He could, you know, there's no, I don't think that MI6 can, can isolate his blood poison and they have a vial that works to save him. Uh, there's so many little things that don't make sense in this movie. And the poker is the least believable thing in this whole movie. Yep. And yep. I think when I watched it as a kid, and, and maybe this is unfair because I think watching as a kid, I bought it. So arguably that means that like it works in the context of the movie. But as soon as you watch, as soon as you have played any poker or watched any poker, literally any at all, like, you know, a few games, you recognize that that last hand is so insane is so not how poker is played everyone goes all in on one hand well and they all have like flushes like everyone yeah exactly it starts with like a straight i think and then ends with a straight flush and it's just bonkers and it's like (laughs) it's just crazy it's a ridiculous hand uh i don't know if you have any thoughts on that but that's it's it's weird to talk about it so passionately, but you just if you don't know, you just have to understand that poker hand is insane. Yeah, is ridiculous. Yeah, it's it's you know you start playing poker, and then I am someone who at one point in my life did watch like the celebrity poker and some poker tournaments. Like over the course of that game, so not just that last hand, but like multiple times, there are like hands that you see once in an entire tournament with more people playing. Yeah. And most hands are like, I have a pair of fives with a king high, so I win, and everyone else folded. Um, and this game's like, flush, straight, royal flush. Like, it's just insane. It's insane. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, I won't spend any more time on the actual logistics of the game. 
uh, my nitpick is actually the entire scene where Mads' character is manipulating Bond and he fakes his tell and they have that stupid police French officer or police officer <laughs> who just keeps saying um, like, look, it's the tell. Or every time he has like a hand, the guy's explaining the game, even though this game is yeah. absurd. It's just lazy writing. It drives me nuts every time. I'm like, oh my God, you don't need to tell me what is going on. Thank you, script writer. Like this is so ridiculous. And they kind I of- I completely just, agree. It's one of the only examples of the movie, like, really talking down to its audience. Again, the movie made $615 million and neither of us have. So maybe, you know, maybe it's the right play and we're just snobs. But, I mean, it's true. It is talking down to the audience. It's like, you guys don't remember this thing from 20 minutes ago. And I'm like, excuse me, I actually do remember that. Since you drew so much attention to it. Thank you. Like later, he literally is like describing things like they're all in. It comes down to this or oh, this is what this hand means and that kind of stuff. I just don't like I don't think I needed to know that. I don't think anyone really needs to know that. I mean, first of all, you know what happens when they all push their chips in. Thank you. But what the bigger problem is, is that, as I mentioned in what works, is that scene is actually really well shot. It's really well written. It is riveting for a poker scene, and this the guy's interjections actually break up that energy. So actually, I think there's yeah, like a fundamental problem with it as a choice. But so yeah, that that's the other thing I had on the poker. Just that character. I'm like, shut up, please stop talking. Please stop. I don't like French people. That's the point. Yeah, that's you've always said it. You've been, you know, I'll give you this. You've been above the board as long as I've known you about that. Yeah. Um. The. I, you know, I could go either way with this. I do think the movie is too long. Yes. I say that while also not knowing exactly what to cut out. But, I mean, the movie is two and a half hours long. Yep. And it's just, and it feels like it, you know. It's like by yep. the end, you're like, wow, we've been through a journey here. Um, like I said, I don't know exactly what to cut out. I do think a couple of the action sets, as much as I love them, maybe are a bit much. Uh, there might be one too many it's kind of an episodic movie too there might be one or two episodes that just needed to be cut out um so i don't know and actually that goes pretty quickly into my next point well which is very related well it's related okay okay. just real quick yeah which is that the i think the plot and structure are just a little too needlessly complex in some places Mm -hmm. um and i think that's part of why the movie's too long is that they you know, we have to go, like, we have the thing with Mathis betraying him, which I still don't, I still haven't totally wrapped my head around. I, I thought, I'm sure I could just read it and make sense of it, but. Isn't, uh, isn't it that he didn't actually betray him, though, and it was covering for the girl? I don't know. But I really think he actually does, because then Bond says, well, no, she's, she was guilty, but that doesn't mean he's innocent. Okay. It's a double blind Got it. I don't know. It's, I don't there, care. There's a lot of little plot <laughs> details. Right. I don't, I don't really know, care. like, <laughs> which is the, like point. the whole thing. I don't even know why we have to see the warlords with Mads Mikkelsen at the beginning. I don't know why. We, there's just a lot in this movie. It's just really long, very complex plot. All the stuff with Miami is great stuff, but also, again, I just don't know if you need it. No. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. So it's, that it's was. A, I, I don't like saying any of that because it's a murky point I, I don't know how to fix it but it just feels a little too complex and a little too long yep you kind of nailed everything that i had you know i i did identify the beach house villa as a scene that drags unnecessarily it just goes too long it just can be shorter it's really long um yeah. 
And, you know, honestly, I think the middle of the film, like you said, it's episodic and a number of those episodes feel like detours in a movie where they they feel more like distractions away from what's going on, not additions to the plot, which is fine as long as your movie isn't two hours long. And this one is. So those detours feel worse because the movie has such a long runtime. If this is a 90 minute film and you have a couple scenes that are just like, well, I don't know why that was here. You kind of skip past it. But when I was watching it, I'm like, why are we still talking about this? Like it actually reminded me of The Last Jedi in that regard, where the reason the casino planet stuff, which is dumb and feels insufferable. But the reason it feels insufferable in that movie is because the movie's too long. Right. I think, yeah, you can have a dumb plot line. But man, once I'm already worn thin on why, why am I still doing this? I want to go to bed. <laughs> like, those feel worse, right? It's a bad side. It's not good. Absolutely. Uh, that's pretty much all I have, but I have thoughts, I think, on some of your things. Do you have any, any well-holds back? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, this is one that we should just get out of the way, which is there's just some familiar trappings of the Bond movies that I don't like especially the Bond girl sexualization, which we don't need to spend a ton of time talking about because I actually think they do a pretty good job with Vesper's character. They still sexualize her to an insane degree, which, whatever, not great. But, you know, the scene that I thought of is like the first girl that he hooks up with. They have her like riding on a horse in a bikini and there's only one clear reason for that, which is they want to make this woman objectified to sell movie tickets and that doesn't, I mean, it's just like, dude, we're in the 21st century. And I get that you're a Bond movie, but come on, guys. Yeah. Yeah, that, this was the main one I, I was anticipating you'd bring up, and I completely agree. Um, I think the, the worst thing about that, I, I do think Vesper, they mostly don't engage in this. They do a little bit, but mostly they don't. Uh, for what's worth, it, it, this is a serious point. They do sexualize Bond as well which not every movie did do and i think is actually kind of a good decision but yeah that first girl was really it's just not great you're right it's it's sexualizing for the audience also the story function has her as disposable yes she is disposed of and (laughs) yes she is they actually kind of call attention to that but not enough where i would actually say they were trying to be subversive fundamentally she still fulfills the same role as those classic disposable bond girls and so that's not great um so yeah i I agree i think that it's certainly that you could say i would say is age bad but actually they haven't really stopped doing that so sure you know yeah also one of the worst things is skyfall too i don't want to as you know we're not doing it Dude, I'm just saying it's really that's a really weird scene. You know what I'm talking about, Skyfall. Let's call us let's call a spade a spade. They do it in vertical limit too. Is that true? No, that's not true. (laughs) Wrapped up in snow gear, you idiot. (laughs) Anyway, we're not talking about Skyfall. Or vertical Um, limit. So I got. Uh, Yeah, I agree. I'm with you. Yeah, I got two last ones. This one's weird. Um. And, and this is kind of like a popping outside of the film, but Daniel Craig being so good at this doesn't work in some degree because there is a part of me that will always wonder what would have happened to his career if he didn't spend 15 years of his prime in this role, right? I feel like we really, yeah. you watch Knives Out, you watch even like Road to Perdition, one of the 
the films he made in early 2000s where he's a side oh, character. he was in Road per- And he's really good. He? He's really good yeah, in that movie. Yeah, I forgot about that movie. And yeah, oh, and then and like it. Layer Cake and stuff, and you're just like, man, I feel like we missed a lot of this dude's career because he was so deeply tied to this role. It's not a really what didn't work for this movie. He works in this movie. It's just a thought exercise, right? Yeah. And then uh, the, uh, la- the last one I got. Yeah, go ahead. The last one I got is and this is kind of a hasn't aged well because we live in the 21st century but depicting spies as good guys pretty much ever at this point is is just a tough beat like yeah the yeah. this this movie's worldview doesn't really work as we have learned more about like spying and the intelligent agencies that have seriously done harm to our world and quite frankly our own country and this idea of even like scenes where you have a Western hero raiding and blowing up an embassy of a majority world country because yeah. they just can is it, there's just a, a level of of theme to any movie that's going to touch on a topic like this and make these guys the heroes that is going to not work for me on some level. Yeah, I actually. So, so that was the last thing I did have was. You know, if you're familiar with literary criticism, there's a movement called post-colonialism that uh, tries to, to read a lot of culture on the basis of like, you know, kind of remembering that we, not even 100, 100 120 years ago, were a heavily imperialized, westernized uh, view of the world, right? Yeah. And th- this is the part of the show where I do say Skyfall got this right to an insane degree. This is why... Skyfall is an incredibly good movie because it addresses this, which is crazy to imagine a bot film addressing imperialism. Um, but this movie doesn't do that. And so this yeah. movie does, you're, you're right, actually, and that was the thing I wrote, was like, wow, feels a little uncomfortable the way that Bod just kind of shoots up a lot of black people in this movie. A lot of like small African nations just kind of become fodder. And we're supposed to just be there that he's right for, but we don't even know why exactly. And we don't even know his motivations exactly, so it's just weird. And and it, yeah, from from a certain reading, it's it's deeply problematic. Again, the series actually does address this at some point, so good on that. But yeah, it, it sticks out with this movie, I would say. Yeah. Yep. Yep. All right. Uh, that you good? That's it for you. What holds the movie back? Yeah, man. Looking okay. forward to Vertical Limit too. Vertical Limit 2, baby. Stray Thoughts. Uh, Mike and I have each prepared a list of uh, stray thoughts that we'll just go back and forth. Uh, Usually we try to blow through this pretty quickly. Okay, so my first one. Uh, I know, like, Eat the Rich and everything, but man, this movie really makes me want to go to a super upscale hotel. Yeah. I just, yeah. I'm just watching the movie, yeah, you know, in, in, in like a really cool location, and I'm like, man, it's morally indefensible to be like a billionaire and stuff. I get it. But wow, I really want to go to just like a really, really nice hotel after watching this movie. It just, it just looks awesome. Uh, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a trader and a coward, but I can live with that. What do you got? Yeah, no, I mean, I, any these like um, Bond movies always make me want to travel to the places. They're just great in terms of where they're set and how they live in those places, um, yeah. which is probably not how any normal person in those places actually lives. So colonialism, <laughs> um, but so I got a I got a question. Just curious your thoughts. Uh, what are your thoughts on making moves on women literally moments after the greatest trauma of their lives? Uh, 
Because, like, he goes into the shower <laughs> with her, which is really sweet. But then he, like, starts That's sucking. That's an interpretation. Then he, then he starts, like, sucking on her fingers, which is, like, a lot I, of WTF. You know, yeah, I guess. I don't know. I thought it. I thought I bought it as sincere. I didn't buy it okay. as, a, as a move. That so could say more about me. Maybe, maybe I'm giving the character too much credit. Uh, I don't know. I bought it as sincere. So well, let me, yeah. let me, let me turn it. Where are you on finger sucking right after the, the most dramatic moment uh, of a girl's life? Uh, pr- pretty, pretty low. <laughs> pretty, it's not pretty proud. It, it's not the way I would want to be comforted. But I don't know. <laughs> he says, "Does that help?" Because she says, "It feels like I've blown up my fingers." He says, "Does that help?" And she says, "Yes." So it's like I don't know. You I know mean, what? Like, he could like get a cloth and it. wash them. I don't know. How, how dare you shame do Vesper do for how she to, wants to be comforted? Do we need to put them in your mouth? <laughs> uh, he does do the, the reach up to change the temperature and an arm around her, but arguably she leans in when he reaches his hand up. Yeah, um, no, I said, like, it's a sweet scene in a lot of ways. It's really just the finger sucking. That's just sure. just not my, you're, you're not my thing. So. Um, is that agent working with Bond at the very, very beginning the worst agent? Ever? Yes. How did that guy get this gig? I have I have questions. And you know what? He doesn't come back at all. Oh, he's like, fired. We literally see him for two minutes. And he doesn't even come back in that scene. He doesn't have a rendezvous where Bond's like, you're such an idiot or something, or he reams him out. He literally, we don't see his face again. That guy may have fallen off the face of the earth. I wouldn't know. Yeah. Um, so just man, to, just a bad, to recap, a bad secret agent. He just to recap, he gets made because he he won't stop holding the earpiece, <laughs> and then and then once made, he just starts shooting into a crowd and starts well, he a, rolled, he and starts his gun out, <laughs> falls and his gun goes off. He doesn't shoot it. Oh, his gun right, just goes right. off because he falls. But that's worse. I think like, <laughs> it's worse. You know, that's not good. Uh, yeah, he's that guy. I don't know how he got that gig. That makes me think I could be the secret agent. I'm like, I'd be better than him. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, I got a two-parter, and they're both related to parkour. So, one, do you blame this movie for making parkour cool for that brief moment in time in the late 2000s? I, I didn't get a read on if it was part of the movement that made it cool or if it was reacting to the fact that parkour parkour was cool in the late 2000s that's a good so, point i don't know chicken or yeah, egg right I, I don't know yeah well the, the second one was how many teenagers plummeted to their deaths because of this movie what's your count <laughs> over under over under 50 <laughs> over 50 seems a little high but frankly i would be I, I, there's gotta be one there's gotta be one kid you saw like a, a construction site and was like, I'm it's gonna do dude. the thing. Let's do it. <laughs> last last okay. this will all work. Last yeah. parkour kind of one that we can move off this point. When Bond is chasing the parkour guy, which is what I put him down as in all my notes. Um, yeah, well he, they don't name him, so I yeah. mean you're that's fair, yeah. But when he's chasing that dude and he jumps through the small opening above the plaster wall and Bond runs straight through it, did you imagine him as the kool-aid man did you hear him go like oh yeah <laughs> did you because i definitely did I, I i'm ashamed to say i didn't think of it until this moment but wow that's you know he even does a little pause after two so it kind of works it kind of works you want some kool-aid <laughs> okay i'm done um 
Is Lashif a rough hang? Uh, oh yeah. What I'm really asking with this question, at the when we're introduced to him, he's playing poker with an elderly couple in his yacht, and I just I'm just forced to ask: Are they just hanging out? Are they friends? That it doesn't look like they're having fun. And he says at the end, get them, tell them to leave, and if they don't leave, throw them off overboard. So I'm just like, a, why were you hanging out with him? B. It seems like he's a rough hang. I don't know. I don't have a read. Well, you know, so yes, he does seem like an incredibly rough hang, especially since, you know, he, the scene with his girlfriend is like actually brutal when they're like, yeah. he's about to cut her arm off and he's just like, I'm just not going to even protest. Like, he's like, well, uh, could be worse. Oh, uh, please stop. No. <laughs> like, that's, 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 uh, that's rough. That's not good. But, uh, so we usually settle this though by, Okay, let's let's just do it. You got the characters from Zodiac or Mads Mickelson in this movie. Who's the harder hang? Uh probably Mads Mickelson, because the characters from Zodiac, with the exception of the killer himself, I don't anticipate could kill me. Sure. And that kind of that's a cloud that hangs over a conversation, I think. So you know? So what we're, I guess where we're at with our hierarchy right now is we have the squirrel dude from Zodiac. He's at the bottom. Right. We have He's at the bottom. That guy's no good. All right. So let's rank Llewellyn Davis or Mads Mikkelsen. <laughs> those are those are the next uh, two. We got to place them. Llewellyn Davis doesn't do anything, so I'm going to say okay. he's the worst hang. Okay. Because so, at least you can play poker with Mads Mikkelsen in this movie, right? Yeah. So we're That's fun. I like a good poker game. So we have the Zodiac Killer, Llewellyn Davis, Mads Mikkelsen, and Casino Royale, and then the characters from Zodiac in some order. Okay. Yeah, we got I'm it. comfortable with that. We got our that pyramid. Good. Yeah. Neat. Uh, oh, this, I is gotta, key, this is the key film criticism we're doing. This is, what you we, we nailed it. Um, for all the BA qualities of Mads' character, uh, the inhaler is pretty freaking weak. I agree. I, I didn't get that at all. And he also just also, leaves it lying around with spies all in the room. That's a whole other thing, but whatever. Kind of, yeah. Couple, couple bad, bad takes there. Um, body world is definitely a thing, but I <laughs> just find it horrifying. I just want to say that. I, I don't know if I would, if, if it was, I don't know if it is still happening today, but it, I guess I should say it was a thing. Uh, I just hate everything about that. And I, I struggle to imagine that I would be walking around just like, oh, this is so cool. All these previously alive people without skin. Yep. I like this. So I, yep. I, my next question was, would you go to a museum of just skin bodies doing various things? Nope. There you go. Nope. <laughs> Got our answer. We can check that I'm one out. off. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, my next one is the scene where he takes the dickhead rich white dude's car and crashes it is the most satisfying <laughs> thing I've ever seen in a movie. It's the kind of thing where you think, I wish I would have the presence of mind to do this, but you know. know you wouldn't, and you wouldn't want to get in trouble. But man, that feels good. It oh, was, it, and he, he just moves so quick where he's like, yep, I'll park it. <laughs> just and the way he just throws the keys vaguely yeah. at the car afterwards, it's yes. so good. Um, do you just die silently when someone sticks a knife in your side? This is yeah. back to the body world thing. Yep, 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 yep. I, I just thought that was weird. I'm like, I don't know if that's... I don't know if that's like, does that kill you? Is that, I don't know. I don't know. We are in uh, sync. Uh, Cause I wrote 
do you buy <laughs> that Bond stabbing someone to death in a crowded museum exhibit without them, without him reacting at all would have happened? Um, yeah, there's like a part of me where you're like, is this dude trying to like preserve Bond's cover? Because that's like a weird time to be generous to the person murdering you instead of drawing attention to the fact that he's stabbing you. So that was a confusing scene. Yeah, didn't make any sense. Because it's a gut, it's a gut wound. It's not like he got him in the heart. I yeah, mean, that's why he and then he just sort of dies like pretty quickly because he doesn't make real, any noise. It's just weird. Real strange scene. Yeah. I'll just go with my next one. It's funny that it actually comes up in the film, but Bond using his real name all the time is the craziest part of this entire series. <laughs> so, yeah. Like, like that's not that that is the the rule zero. And being a secret agent is that you assume other identities and Bond constantly just gives his real name. And again, it comes up in the movie when they have an identity, but he goes to the concierge and just says, oh, it's Bond, but you'll find another different name. And he says, oh, you know what? They already knew it was me, so there's no point hiding. Um, but yeah, it doesn't make any sense if you think about it for two seconds. It's like, how come he always says his actual name? I don't know. Anyways. Yeah. I mean, I, I question Bond's competency in this movie, but anyway, not a Bond guy like you are. Um, so uh, when this is another another film reference that just popped into my mind. But when Bond exits the ocean and like poses, he straight up stands yeah. like Derek Zoolander. And I literally was just like, Bond, wow. so hot right now. Bond. Wow. I never thought of that, but that's true. It's great. He gives the the little the little like leaning too hard onto one hip and kind of yeah. Well, come on. Uh, yeah, it's better incredible. better spy Derek Zoolander or James Bond? Go. It's tight. It's a tight race. It's close. Derek Zoolander. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it always amuses me when a film studio owned or partnered with a tech company has to go out of their way to demonstrate that company's tech. It is really small, but every single, every single laptop is a Sony Bio laptop, <laughs> and every single phone is a Sony Ericsson phone. I just find that hysterical. Because yeah. you see maybe, even in 2006, you saw maybe like one of those out in the wild. They were not popular, either of them. And yet in this universe, because Sony can't, Sony owns the studios. They're like, obviously, every tech has to say very prominently Sony. Yeah. I just think that's hysterical. And it's one of those. I'm a tech person, so I just noticed that. I just think that's incredible. What you got? Uh, two lines I really liked. The first one I want to start using with you, which um, comes from our, our homie, Judy Dench. Um, you've got a bloody cheek. Which is, yeah, I guess, that's a it, great British put down. Yeah, I, love that. I guess that's a way of t saying I'm annoyed with you. So I'm, I'm just gonna start uh, saying it, that. <laughs> so to have cheek is to like be presumptuous in in how you're acting. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's like, and so I think bloody is just a modifier of like kind of saying like you you've know, got an f effing cheek. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's but that's great. I want. I also want to use that in my daily life. It's so good. Um, and then I think is it. Is it M who says, Bond, what the hell are you up to at one point? Might be yeah. the dumbest question ever asked in a Bond movie. <laughs> but it also kind of oddly summarizes the entire series. So I don't really sure. know what to do with it. So in a sense, it's a perfect one. Yeah. Uh, I only have one I only have one straight thought left. Um, it's, it's a question. And it's a genuine question because I'm confused. What happens to Vesper in the elevator underwater? Because it looks distinctly 
like she gets jarringly pulled back and it's never been clear to me what exactly the mechanic because at first it seems like she's trying to kill herself she puts she she hits a thing the elevator falls in the water ball and jumps in after yeah they have that really that genuinely i think emotionally powerful moment where um she just he's trying to open the gate but she just takes his hand and just wants to hold his hand for a second and and so it's like okay so she just wants to die because she feels ashamed cool this is great okay but then she makes a startled face and like it's in like drops to the floor of the elevator which it's underwater so that doesn't really make sense and then looks like she's like struggling to breathe and then she and then she's dead and she's just floating so i guess is she like like freaked out and like i don't want you to save me and she's just like pushing herself back and it just looks to me like she's startled is that what's happening yeah so i don't know the jarring back part of it I do know that she what you see is that she inhales water. So she like has been keeping air in her lungs and then she chooses to take a big, deep breath of water. And that's like that big scream followed that's by the like startling face kind of face. Of, yes. I of, guess so, so, but, but she clearly like flies back at one point. It's yeah. I, so, so I don't, I don't clear to me what's happening. I don't understand how she moves backwards. So I, I can't touch on that, but I do know that they're okay. capturing and apparently drowning is one of the most painful ways to die. So it's literally sure. a moment where so your lungs I, I are full of water and she but she is making that choice to open her mouth let all of her air out which means all the water rushes in right so yeah i i buy that well that got Any, dark anything else oh <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah two quick ones uh one i'm a huge fan of people using nail guns as weapons shout out to the equalizer <laughs> um and then the central premise of this movie is shorting stock markets and it's essentially like the game stuff GameStop stuff going on so I thought this movie actually I, was, was resident or wait, no, I was kind was of resonant, 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 resonates. It resonates. It resonates. There with, we go. Yeah. Uh, across time. Really appreciated that. I was a little surprised when, when they mentioned offhand, he was shorting the aviation stock. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know if I, I didn't think I knew what shorting meant before I watched the big short, but I guess I saw it in this movie. I don't think I, totally understand understood the plot of this movie until very recently yeah me too but, but <laughs> i missed all of that I don't know. the first I, time i saw this <laughs> i think that has more i don't know you, you can tell me if i'm wrong i assume that has more to do with the fact that i was 14 when i watched it yeah, yeah yeah i don't um, think but i it might under, just be a confusing movie i don't know i don't think i understood shorting stock i understood about 50 percent of it when big short came out and then i actually grasped it with this new GameStop thing. So <laughs> I, I don't think Love you're it. alone. I And they just throw it out offhandedly in this. I promise you, I didn't understand why they were trying to blow up that plane. I probably thought it was just a terrorist attack. Um, yeah, that's, so, I think yeah. that's what I assumed. It might even have been this most recent rewatch. I was like, oh, he is a banker and, he gave, and he's shorting stock with their money. So now he doesn't have any. So he has to win this game in order to. Okay. 100%. This all adds up. It yeah, all I did, I did not put that on this together. rewatch. Totally yep. No, I'm with you. Right. Literally for right, this podcast. Uh, stick, yeah. uh, stick around. We're going to do our essays uh, right after the break. Hey, everybody, welcome back. In this section of the podcast, Mike and I have each prepared a uh, essay, kind of diving into some deeper part about the film. Uh, uh, I'm pretty sure I'm going first, so, Mike, I'm just going to go ahead. Go for it, John. Take it to the vertical limit. Okay. 
By late 1990, U2 had a problem. The Irish rock band had come to dominate the 1980s music charts with a completely original sound and and vision, wholly unlike their contemporaries. They developed a a style of earnestness and yearning and, and sort of soaring, and that sound carried them through to their crowning achievement, 1987's The Joshua Tree, which was hailed as a landmark album, critically acclaimed a mega blockbuster. But after The Joshua Tree the band found that they were stuck. Their follow-up, 1988's Rattle and Hum, was kind of, I guess, hollow-sounding. Certainly, it didn't receive anywhere near the critical and commercial success that the band had come to enjoy. Internally, they were also kind of fragmenting. The four members had relied on a shared vision of what kind of music they could make, but now that they had succeeded so wildly, that vision seemed to fade away. They were pulling in different directions. And so for the first time in the band's existence, they agreed to take a break. Reconvening to record the inevitable next album, they finally came to realize that the problem hanging over them was their identity. This thing that had started out as a true expression of who they were had come to dominate every aspect of their public lives. They were seen only as the four young guys who wore their heart on their sleeves and dreamed big. And as long as that was true, there was no room left for them to grow, nothing original or exciting or vibrant left to record. So they were at a crossroads. They could have played it safe and just kept recording the same kinds of songs and making money from people who just sort of blindly loved them. Or they could take a risk and attempt to change everything about themselves to completely reinvent their persona. Of course, I wouldn't be telling you the story if they hadn't taken the risk. But the amazing thing isn't just that their next album, Akhtun Baby in 1991, was so acclaimed and so successful, it actually became arguably their biggest album. The amazing thing is how they totally upended their own identity. Here's a quote from uh, Pitchfork's retrospective review of Akhtun Baby. Akhtun Baby is rightly known as one of Rock's greatest reinventions because it was so complete. Sure, you 2 changed their sound from chiming melodics to lurching distorted rhythm, but they also changed their attitude, their demeanor, their look, their ideas on how to deal with celebrity. All of a sudden, they were funny, sexy, a bit dangerous. Three things few would have associated with you 2 in the 80s, end quote. And the thing about successful reinvention is that it is so difficult for every act or series or persona that gets it right there are dozens that get it wrong they go too far or not far enough they throw out things that should have stayed or they bring in new elements that just don't work i'm obsessed with the idea of what successful reinvention looks like which finally brings us to casino royale one of the coolest things about james bond as a series is that it presents such a convenient opportunity for reinvention. Actors portraying Bond come and go, and in the process allow the producers, writers, and filmmakers to kind of shuffle in and out, bringing entirely new sensibilities and styles and helping to keep the series relevant. Having said that, despite the fact that the series had changed in prior films, no shift was quite as dramatic as Daniel Craig's arrival. Just like U2 in 1990, James Bond in 2005 was in a crisis point. 
We've talked about this a little bit, but just to recap, Pierce Brosnan's time with the character had started off strong with Goldeneye, but the series quickly settled first into kind of dull repetition and then into total ridiculousness. The last few entries, particularly Die Another Day, had been critically panned and commercially disappointing. Some commentators were already saying that the world had bypassed the character entirely, that a fictional, suave, womanizing super spy was completely anachronistic to modern audiences. And in a sense, those critics were right, because what the character in movies had become no longer resonated with anyone. And here I think we find our first lesson of what successful reinvention looks like. It has to be born out of genuine need. It's too big of a risk to take casually. In order for a creator to commit to reinvention, they have to have no other option left but artistic and possibly financial bankruptcy. Once it was decided that the Bond series needed, literally, a a new face, the next step, counterintuitively, was to go back to the source. Casino Royale was the first Bond film based on an Ian Fleming novel since 1979's Moonraker. The writers said that they compared the character's original incarnation with what the films had become and found that the difference was extraordinary. As originally conceived and written, the stories were much darker. The titular character was more chilling and cold, psychologically complex. The challenges and problems he faced were much more intimate and personal. So they found that the best way forward was by going as far back as they could. It's a weird aspect of ongoing artistic expression, whether it's a series like James Bond or from artists like you 2 who keep releasing new albums, that an original vision can be very slowly tainted over time. One new element is added, and it works well, and then it becomes a staple. And soon another new element is added, and it works well, and it also becomes a staple. Over time, a lot of those elements start to become stale and overused, and their original purpose is lost. But the problem is that both the creators and the audience will usually start to confuse those little trappings with the essence of the thing itself. So just like U2 wasn't sure who they were as a band without, for example, chimey guitars and soaring choruses, it wasn't exactly clear what the Bond series would be without the little catchphrase or the opening gun barrel graphics sequence or the high-tech gadgets or the psychologically shallow kind of smarmy super spy personality. And this is where most of the risk of reinvention comes from, because people grow attached to these little things that have been picked up. And as I said, these trappings become confused with the identity of the piece itself. So the answer most of the time is to lop them off, to jettison everything that isn't directly connected to that core identity, no matter how important it feels to the identity of what the thing has become. So now that they were back to the original vision of the character, They had one final but key step to take. They had to translate all of this into something that connects with people the way a good action movie does. In effect, they had to recapture the power of what the series had actually become. This sounds somewhat backwards. After all that work changing what your identity has become, why care about that previous identity's goals? But it's a critical step because without it, you lose any continuity with what you once were. 
If the series changed to become something wildly, wholly unrecognizable, that's not a successful reinvention, but a completely new creation. And a new creation may have value, but it just isn't part of the ongoing expression of that original series or artist. So for the creators of Casino Royale, after going back to the characters' origins and stripping all of the clutter that the series had accumulated, the final step was to identify the aspects of the film series that people loved and articulate what the broad impact of those elements were. Bond movies were popcorn movies, crowd pleasers, and in their quest to reinvent the character, the filmmakers had to stay true to that legacy. The key is that they had license to use different, fresher means to achieve that goal. Incidentally, this is also the step in reinvention when truly anachronistic elements of the series, social and political attitudes, for example, can just be completely left behind. That earlier quote from a Pitchfork review of U2's Octone Baby actually goes on to say this, And yet, at their core, the band's values remain constant. They were still ethically minded and interested in the real-life connection between living beings, but the way they went about projecting those core tenets flipped. That's the key thing, is that reinvention doesn't supplant your identity, but reinvigorates it. That this process allows you to recenter on what matters to you. And here's where I think there's something spiritually exciting. Because our own lives need occasional reinvention as well. Not in the sense of changing, you know, what you wear or where you live, but in the sense of rediscovering what your core identity is, exercising the coping mechanisms you've picked up, that is to say the trappings that were once helpful but have come to drag you down, and reintroducing the principles and goals that actually are valuable to you. Taken together, it's not an easy exercise, but I think it's a critical one. Like the Bond series, we as individuals are so capable of falling into ruts, of losing our identity, or letting it become confused with the shallow things that have grown up around it. Reinvention happens when an artist or creator feels that their identity has somehow become muddled or confused. When someone knows, or at least suspects, that the elements of their style that used to work so well no longer resonate. As much as I love when artists or film series dear to me undergo a successful reinvention, I think it's far less exciting than when people I know are able to take the same process and apply it to their own lives. Because clearing out all of these things that have built up creates such an incredible opportunity for personal growth. So, uh, as usual, I don't actually have any questions, but I guess um, the main thing I'm curious about is what you think about this idea of reinvention in our personal life. Um, the way that, I don't know, do, do, these, do, do those steps of the process feel familiar to you, feel like something you've ever engaged with, of you know, finding that core identity, removing these things that have been you know, tacked on over time, and then also trying to maintain the same goals as what you were, you know, what you used to care about. Does that, does that sound relatable? Does that sound off mark? What, what, what do you think about that? No. Yeah. I liked it a lot. I think it's pretty spot on. I think the only one that maybe, 
I, I just have to think about it more is is the question of were these values or goals always there? Because I don't know if that's always true in my life. You know, maybe if you went to the 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 rock bottom foundation of I want to help people, you could be like, oh, yeah, well, you are going back to a core value that's always been there. But a lot of the time when I've gone through reinvention, like I've had pretty dramatic value changes, too, of what do I think is important? Sure. Um, what do I think my goals for my life should be? Right. But I think. And again, that's all to say, that's the only one that I quibble with. I think the rest of it, I think, is spot on. You know, I think every time that I have had a reinvention of myself, if you want to say it that way, it has come out of first an actual need. You know, I need to change. Something has happened in my life. We talked about this a while back in terms of like those events that that bring about that powerlessness or the rock bottoms. Right. Um, Yeah. My ego does not change by choice it is almost always humiliated or i am forced to through how i think about the world how i live in the world does not fundamentally work anymore it does not produce what i want my life to produce right um and then almost always there's a return to some sort of source or some sort of simplicity right um there's this moment in which i have made my sense of self or how I think I need to live in the world, super complex, super bloated, super um, complicated, and almost always in that complication, hypocritical at times or contradictory. Like I have built my life around things that when held in unison don't make sense and thus don't produce something good. Um, I almost always find myself returning to a simplicity, right? Of you know, getting back to the basics. Uh, I, I just want to care for people. I just, I just want to be healthy and whole. I just want to grow and I haven't in a while. Like there's this return to what has always brought me passion or contentment, um, any number of things in my life. And I find myself, I guess that just comes out of that natural reflection of I'm not content right now. When was the time that I was content? How do I get back to that? Right. And then there's uh, the last thing I'll say, and then I'd love to hear your thoughts, is there's always a relativizing that takes place. What does that core value source, you know, thing I want to get back to, what does that look like in the current iteration of my life, in the current context of my life? You know, I can think back idyllically to my childhood, but that how I was then doesn't actually work if I just plopped it down as a 31 year old with a kid, right? I think that's actually where like midlife crises come from, um, or at least unhealthy <laughs> midlife crises. So it's what is that sense of, you know, purity, presence, focus, uh, satisfaction, love of self, love of others. What does that look like with who I am now and what my responsibilities are now and how I live my life now? Right. Um, so that that just a brain dump there. Those are kind of where I, I was going as you were talking, but I think it's spot on. Absolutely. I, I think that's great. I have a couple of things from there that I want to just touch upon very briefly. I really like the idea you, you mentioned about how these things that we that we take on and that we develop, you know, uh, actually start to contradict each other and start to contradict our identity. Yeah. But we don't recognize that often until we've had them for so long that they're key to us. And again, going back to Bond, I think you see that. Like all these, the, the, it always wanted to be an exciting, invigorating action series, but all this little stuff in the character that had developed made it stale and made it kind of boring and kind of anachronistic and all these problems. So they were contra- their identity was self-contradictory in a yeah. sense. Um, 
And I think that happens to us, right? You, you reach that point of, and I think what's so interesting is you have, you start having this cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. and you start walking around with this, like, I just feel like I'm running, I'm going nowhere. I'm spending a lot of energy and standing still. And I think often that's the culprit, not always, but often that's the culprit is that you've, you've taken on these parts of your identity that contradict other things in your identity. Yeah. But you've had all of them for so long that you, you wouldn't even know to look there. You wouldn't even know that you've developed that issue. Um, I say all that, and I feel the need to mention this every now and then, recognizing that I do this. That, that this, mm-hmm. is, this is a huge problem with my, that, that I struggle with. Um, that's why I talk about it so, um, so confidently. Yeah, um, yeah. And when it's, and it's ongoing. Um, you know, one of the things, just briefly, from what you just said was, you know, I think about this in terms of mental patterns all the time. And this was something that got pointed out to me and I still have to work on constantly. And it's something that's one of the, one of the go-to things that I say to people as I provide counseling is so often when I talk about my, my most broken parts of myself, my character defects, like let's just take anger as an example, example, I will find myself saying I'm an angry person. And I remember my my sponsor stopped me at one point. He says, you're not an angry person. You're a person who struggles with anger. Just because you Mm. have fed this problem or you have added this into your life over and over and over again, like that doesn't, it's not your identity. And as long as you think of it as like kind of what you were saying with the Bond films, a core tenet of what it means to be Bond, or in this case, anger is a core tenet of what it means to be Mike. It is part of my identity. He's like, it's never going to change. You don't see it as a problem yeah. that can change, right? You have so deeply associated it with yourself. So there is that mental thing where it's just like, I, I think what you were describing is we have to get over thinking that this is just who I am or this is just how I am, which is an incredibly hard thing to do. And to also mirror you, I'm, I do it all the time. I'm just like, my mental jump is to immediately associate it with me. And that is a huge problem when it comes to this kind of reinvention. I have always fancied minimalism. Now, many confuse minimalism with asceticism, which is an easy mistake. Asceticism is the spirituality and practice of self-discipline and poverty. It revolves around abstaining from vices or things like overindulgence and excess, ultimately seeking to produce a life of simplicity, self-knowledge, purity, and detachment. And I say confusing these can be an easy mistake because in many ways, minimalism is similar to asceticism in terms of effect. It too encourages an artistic expression or lifestyle defined by stripping away excess and indulgence. However, It diverges from asceticism in motivation. Minimalism's goal is to strip everything down to its essential quality, less for moral reasons and more to achieve simplicity of form and functionality. It seeks to create art, design buildings, or shape a lifestyle where every part of something is reduced to a stage where nothing else can be added or removed to improve its design or functionality, where everything serves an intentional purpose necessary to its form and function. No excess fat, encouraging us to find beauty in the foundational simplicity 
the true essence of something existing in this minimal state, which I find incredibly beautiful and freeing. Because what it does is it asks of everything, art, possessions, belief, institutions. It asks, what is this for? And is it simply achieving its intended goal? Or is it losing its effect under the weight of more, more, more? It cuts straight through the BS, forcing us to examine what actually works in our lives or a project or an art piece, and encouraging us to cut out and free ourselves of anything that doesn't meet that goal. What we've added on to anything, even when it doesn't actually need it, even when our additions don't actually aid or add to its stated purpose. It's a perfect tool and mindset for getting back to the basics of something, which more and more I find to be a necessary exercise. One of the most common trends of the modern world is something that I've heard called feature creep. Essentially, kind of like John was talking about in his monologue, an item is made, it is given an addition, that addition is successful, and then more and more is added to it, and then over time, it becomes something almost totally unrecognizable from what it was originally intended to be and what it was intended to do. I mean, we live in a time where almost anything can be made bigger and given more. Our iPhones can have more and more data, more and bigger apps, more and bigger accessories. We have constant access to more and bigger content. In the age of Disney cinema, every ounce of IP can and should produce more and bigger movies, we're told. Every advertisement sells us more and bigger sources of comfort and security. And yet, if you're like me, you've come to feel that more and bigger doesn't inherently mean better. That at times it overwhelms our ability to be impacted by that content. It renders a product too complex or too overloaded with add-ons to be useful. Or it creates a form so buried in excess that we've forgotten its actual function in the first place. Or in the case of cinema, more and bigger can dilute the effectiveness of a movie swallow up the original purpose of a story, ultimately lead a movie or a series to forget what led us to fall in love with it in the first place. It just becomes buried under all the things that have added to it and this desire to have it be more and better and bigger. And honestly, I can't think of a better example than the James Bond franchise. The movies that I grew up with were those of Pierce Brosnan, and they were defined by the culmination of decades of built-up excess and extravagance. Each seemed to have one goal there at the end, to simply be bigger and to have more than what had come before it. There were invisible cars, lasers, every gadget imaginable. Scenes like we alluded to, where bonds surfed on tidal waves, or were villains with new faces given to them by plastic surgery and they also i guess win olympic gold medals or something and they create space lasers to destroy minefields or whatever again confusing as hell but i digress every movie sometimes within every scene in a singular movie only seemed to have this purpose in mind one upping what came before it in scale and spectacle and yet for me, at least, the result was the exact opposite of what I believe was its intended effect. Rather than thrilling, engaging, intense, they felt underwhelming, hollow, and more than anything, silly, stupid, and absurd. Sometimes fun, 
but certainly not anything worthy of forming nostalgia or any level of devotion. That focus on excess, bigger, more just led the Bond franchise to forget what actually made it good, what actually made its character worthy of new tales and installments, which is why Casino Royale was such a fresh take for me. I still remember seeing it in theaters and for the first time being excited to see more Bond movies that would come next. And that's because Casino Royale understood the franchise's need for a little minimalism. Which isn't to say that it doesn't have any excess, don't get me wrong. I certainly wouldn't call this movie explicitly minimalist. But I would say that more than any Bond movie I have seen, Casino Royale focuses on form and function, cutting out much of the rest that had come to define and dragged down the franchise in the last several decades. It doesn't try to one-up or get bigger than what's come before. Instead, it seeks to ground the franchise purely in what makes it actually work. It retains what we love about Bond villains, the villain stamp, the crying blood in Casino Royale, but doesn't get weighed down by the extravagant motivations of villains past. There are no plans for world domination or to destroy the White House. His master plan is almost boring, but in a good way that helps us actually take him seriously. He's a bad dude trying to get rich, leverage power, and not die. Back to the basics. It retains Bond's tension, but without falling into the absurd. Achieved through the embracing of a level of gritty realism unseen in these movies. It's perhaps best captured in the film's torture scene. Again, there are no pools of sharks that Bond is dangled over. No slow lasers or countdown clocks or dangerous items moving towards him while tied to a chair. It's a scene that simply opens with Mads Mikkelsen cutting a hole in a crappy chair and then going to town on his balls with a rope. Back to the basics. But more than anything else, it embraces a refreshing simplicity of form. There are no invisible cars, no watch lasers, no surfing on tidal waves, nothing that becomes silly or stupid or a distraction. There's just great action set pieces, tense games of chance, fast cars, and glove compartments that when open don't have the Ark of the Covenant inside, just a pistol with a silencer and a fancy first aid kit. And in that return to simplicity, to that minimalist focus, Casino Royale gave me something that I didn't even know I wanted. A Bond movie that truly cut out the fat, that got basic, that got minimal. Suave spy with fast cars and a weapon of choice. A villain with a gimmick and a dastardly plot that I could understand after a lot of viewings. And edge of your seat cat and mouse spy thrills with action sequences to keep the film moving. Nothing more, nothing less. Not bigger, not excessive, just pure distilled James Bond. A movie with form and function that actually worked and achieved what it intended. Drawing me in, raising my heart rate, making me laugh, leading me to fall in love with this titular character, perhaps for the first time. And thus making me look forward with a little bit of glee to what might come next after he muttered those classic words. Bond. James Bond. 
Yeah, man. That's great. We are so so we're we're, we're treading a lot of similar ground here, but that's yeah. not bad. It's it's because a I little. Think, I think we. Go you copy. You copied me. That's all I was gonna say. That's, yeah, uh, obviously. Honestly, uh, I've been meaning to tell you this. You've got a mole. I've got Adi sending me um, <laughs> all of the all of the different things you saved to your hard drive. She's great at computers. She just emails it to me, and I'm just ha ha ha. I'm gonna scoop it, and I say ha 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 like that. Well, no, I think that's great. Great. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if you have any questions for me I, I did have one thing i just wanted to comment on if, if that's yeah, okay go for it um it's I, I love that idea of talking about the difference between minimism excuse me minimalism versus asceticism and because you, you're right i think people confuse that a lot um and it's such an interesting concept to apply to to filmmaking too um i actually think it's very re- relevant to that kind of low stakes versus high stakes thing i was talking about yeah, earlier absolutely where like you said there's this like lately with, with the Disney IPification of everything and and the way that all of these superhero movies operate, everything has to be ultra high stakes lately. And it just bugs me because it, it, it doesn't, over time, that just numbs you to that. So like if I'm watching a movie, especially a superhero movie, and there's a giant laser that goes into the ground that if they don't stop it, it's going to blow up the world my eyes roll into the back of my head right yeah absolutely. i'm just out of it because i'm like oh my god i've seen this so many times low stakes just lets things land i in my opinion so much better i love when a movie is like you know what at stake here is this relationship or you know this this amount of money or maybe even like this town or something like that yeah all of that just just hits so much harder <laughs> because that's something i can relate to I honestly have never come up against possibly losing uh, or, you know, dooming the entire human race because I fail at something. But I've definitely had times when a personal relationship is at stake, right? Yeah. And so that just that just means so much more, I guess. I guess. So so that's why I talk about the, the stakes thing so much when I'm talking about why certain movies work. Um, yeah, that, that, I just really love that. I think it's just so connected with, with that idea of what you're talking about. Yeah, and it, it's really interesting with the the con that concept of stakes because on one hand as you kind of hinted at um there's diminishing returns right you can only have the end of the world be saved at the last second a few times before your eyes start rolling it's just not a it's just not a plot device that you could go back to the well on over and over and over again and still create the same um excitement but it's also incredibly problematic in the modern landscape because we have so much more access to information. You know, I remember with mm. Endgame where, you know, they snap the fingers and all the heroes or half the heroes die. And you're like, I already know they're making movies for these guys in three years. So I know they're <laughs> they're going to come back. There are no stakes. And it, it, I hate, I wish I could say I just sat in that movie and appreciated it for what it is. But I didn't. I literally sat there and be like, none of this is going to last. This is all, this is all fake, uh, uh, fake disaster this is all fake drama because i know all of these somehow some way are gonna return so they can make more movies and that guts i mean it it just guts a film so like you said there's this there's this identification part that gets broken when you go to that high level every single time in which i can't identify with the crisis but there's also just a functional purpose which is that 
it, it makes it feel like it's not actually going to end in the way that they yeah. seem to be implying that it will, right? Yeah. Um, really quick shout out. This is the biggest tangent I've ever got on, and I'm, it's not going to be a long one. It's just really out of left field. But if you do go for big stakes, then you know what? Cash in on it and do something so out of the way that it it's just crazy. Final Fantasy VI came out in 1994. Oh my, what on earth is happening? And I, I, I'm going to spoil it. I'm sorry to anyone. If, if you haven't played this game yet and you think you're going to, a 30-year-old RPG, then I guess stop listening. Um, Final Fantasy VI has a character, I'm just going to cut to the end of this, who threatens to blow up the world. And then he does. And the second half of the game is like 15 years later in like a post, like like a hellish landscape version of the world. And you're sort of trying to get vengeance, but it's kind of complicated. But that's such a cool moment because in every video game and cartoon and movie and whatever up to that point, if you play it and the world is at stake, you know, well, they're not going to succeed, right? Yeah. Like they can't. So I wonder how the heroes are going to get out of this. So it's so cool when it actually happens. I guess cool is maybe a weird word. Um, and stuff like that. So, so, so you know, if you're going to go for those high stakes things, actually make it real. Make it land in some interesting way. I just think that's really important. Um, really quick, my, my last thing I had written down, though, was th- an interesting way I think that this applies to how we live our lives is, you know, Getting back again, I'm stuck on the language of stakes, but I think this still applies from the conversation about minimalism and, and looking towards, you know, what is the core function of these things? What, How do I let these things impact my identity, right? Um, I think that is really meaningful for ways that we set goals for our lives. Mm. The reason why is I think that often, and certainly I'm guilty of this, that, that conversation about excess, I tend to do that when I'm trying to to create self-improvement. So I think this is familiar, right? It, it's the, um, you know, at the beginning of the year, it's like, okay, I'm going to, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna start running, I'm gonna start going to the gym, I'm gonna go on a diet, I'm going to, you know, if you smoke, I'm gonna stop smoking, I'm gonna, maybe I'm gonna go vegetarian. You just create like this huge list of things where I'm gonna do all of this now. And this, and in six months, I'm gonna look like a model. And it's like, and then of course you get a weekend and you completely fail. And the reason why is because in a sense you're doing this process in reverse. You're throwing in all these things that haven't had a chance to develop into a part of your identity and that don't have a function in your life. And of course they don't stick with you because you haven't really built them properly. Mm. You start with, I'm going to start walking every day. You start with something small and low stakes and attainable and real and graspable and you wait until that thing becomes part of your identity becomes something you have to do if you don't do it it feels weird you're like well wait uh, it's a what haven't i done today why do i feel weird today oh i didn't go on my walk and now that thing is part of your life and now it's it's has a function in how you live so you can add on to it okay well i'm going to start eating better but that looks very simple. I'm gonna just try to cut out, you know, sh- soda or something, sugary soda. And again, it's attainable and it's small. And, and you see how you build these things slowly and they slowly become part of your identity. And I think 
that's just important because it's it's again i am very pro to not do that i want everything and i want it now but when you build those things slowly they have a chance to actually form part of your identity and become valuable to you and, and make a real change on your life and i just think it's just so easy to miss that i guess yeah i think you're right um it's funny the focus on functionality because i also think there's a great just a kind of yes and what you just said there's also a great yeah. a great reminder of how we measure the success of these things that we're adding right um and i'm gonna do my own roundabout thing real quick but one of the things our our church is starting a like 12 week series on the book of james so i've been head into this book in the Bible that no one ever teaches on. No one talks about it because it's so strange. It's, it's so different than the letters from Paul that most people here kind of thrown on billboards or on bumper stickers or on Facebook, because he's just so uninterested in complex theology, right? He is this author who literally is just like, it's simple, love God, love neighbor. And here are the practical, tangible ways that you start doing that. And if you're not doing that, then you don't believe the things that you say you believe, essentially. And he, it, it's beautiful because what he's essentially doing is like, here is a small way for you to become a more loving person to your neighbor by how you talk. And measure that by what it produces in your life. Are you becoming kinder? Are you becoming more generous with your money? Are you becoming less like magnetic when it comes to conflict, right? He has all these little like small things and it's kind of like what it's like the next step of what you're saying build these small things in your life build habits and then measure them with that return to simplicity that we kind of talked about in your essay and this one with a simple measurement it's like hey if you want to become someone who's more productive add a small thing and then check in are you becoming more productive in terms of are you getting x number of more things done at your work over this many hours right if you want to become more generous, add a small thing and then be check in a month. Have I given away more this year, month than I did the month previous, right? And what's so cool about that check-in system is it's all about functionality. It cuts through the BS. It cuts mm. through those those stories that we tell to kind of excuse ourselves or to, uh, <laughs> you know, to compromise on things that we yeah. shouldn't compromise on. And it just gets down to like the raw numbers. And it's just like, hey, make a change in your life and then measure it. Does it function in the way that you want it to? And if not, do better, change it, try something else. So, yeah, I love that point. I think those small changes and then checking in and measuring them for their function as we go is just a key lesson in this stuff. Hey guys, thank you again so much for listening. Uh, we do have a final question for each other, but before that, I do want to tell you guys what is on the next episode. We are going to be doing, uh, we're going to our boy, Paul Thomas Anderson, and we're watching Boogie Nights. Yes! Which is one of my all-time favorite bow, movies. Bow, I'm so bow, excited bow. for this. Uh, hi, Mike, what's the power ranking on movies you don't want to watch with your parents? Is this is this one seed? Oh, Two oh yeah. Seed? It's, it's super high. It's it's up there like Requiem's number one. And then yeah, and then actually most of Boogie Nights I'd probably be pretty okay with, but man, that last scene where 
Uh, he takes his pants off. Takes, he takes his pants takes off. You to say top that. Tier. I don't know how long it's been since you watched it. There's a few other seats that okay. I wouldn't I'll, watch. I'll, take your, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> At any rate, if you haven't seen it, uh, it's an amazing movie. And I'm, I'm unbelievably excited that we're doing that. But now we have our final questions. Uh, Mike, I'm going to go first. I had something else written down, but you, you brought this to mind when we were talking after my essay. Uh, if you had... At this moment in your life, a traditional midlife crisis, <laughs> what would you do? What would it look like? If, if you just said, you know what? I'm done with all of this. My whole personality, I'm going to jettison. And uh, what, what would your next step be? What's the thing that, what's the overindulgence you would take part in? So it's funny because this is going to sound like just like fake, humble, and crappy. But let me explain. My personality type if you do the Enneagram, it's a type eight is very other focused. Now, sure. That does not mean I'm not self-centered. My self-centeredness can come out as me acting like I'm helping other people, but really doing it for myself. Right. So I don't want it to be like, Oh, I'm so good. I only care about other people. So my midlife crisis would be just becoming entirely self-centered and just being like, I like hiking. So I'm just going to abandon my family and go live in Montana and hike Glacier National Park every day for the rest of my life and like live in a cabin. Like it would actually be really boring, but it would also be just as crappy because I'd probably just abandon a lot of people and go live. I'd go be a hermit, essentially. Yeah, that sounds nice. That sounds really nice. That that completely checks out with you, too. I could see I could see you really enjoy that. Honestly, Mike, I work at Yosemite National Park. Just just swing up. Yeah, You you know, like. I got, much, I got a spot for you over here, buddy. How much do I like my child? She'll be fine, right? Oh, no. She'll be fine, this right? This is, uh, <laughs> for, for, the, for the court de- deposition later, this is Monday, May 24th, uh, 2021. <laughs> just for when this gets entered as evidence in the divorce trial, you know, I just wanted to, to help out that poor guy having to sort through all these episodes. So, uh, what, what's well, your, real quick, real yeah, quick, what would yours look like? I'm curious. I honestly hadn't thought of an answer uh, because I just thought of it a couple minutes ago. The question. Porn um, star? Obviously. Yeah, because we're talking about Bucky Nights. And hey, yeah. I'm in California too. No, I, the funny thing is I feel like I'm already doing it because I just don't have like like the same. I'm not beholden to. I don't have the same level of responsibility as you is what I'm saying. I don't have a family so or you know, a, a wife and, a, and a kids and anything. So, you know, in a sense, I think moving to California for a random <laughs> job outside a national park may or may not be there. I don't know. Did you feel attacked um, when I was describing my midlife crisis as your life? Yeah, I was kind of like, oh, you know, I, I don't know about this. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe something like that. I feel like I'm trying to instigate a midlife crisis, but, but I've been unsuccessful. So, I don't know. I guess I don't have a good answer. Okay. Um, I have a quick, like, a side question because I can't believe I didn't ask you this. Who is your favorite Bond? I was so hoping you were going to ask me that. I was, if you hadn't, I would have just answered that question anyways. Um, because I obviously I have a answer to that. Yeah. So here's the thing. Um, Dalton is stupid underrated. And if he had had more movies, it would have, he would be at the top. Like, frankly, he's amazing. And The Living Daylights is a great movie. But he only had two movies, Living Daylights, which was amazing, and License to Kill, which is abominable. And so <laughs> that that kind of sucks. Um, 
The answer is Craig is obviously the best Bond and the best portrayal of Bond. Mm. But in my head, what I do is I just separate the eras. I just think yeah. classic Bond and new Bond. New Bond is only Craig, so he wins. Classic Bond, in terms of the the uh, old portrayal of the character, I actually say Brosnan and then Connery, which is anathema to other Bond fans. But I think even though his movies mostly weren't good, Brosnan was the best portrayal of mm. the character. He himself, I think, was perfect at that effortless, charismatic, suave, whatever thing. Um, but his movies became kind of trash. But he did such a good job of that. Um, I, I and love, obviously Connery is Connery. So. I love this because every time you throw out like, the name of one of these movies, I have no idea what you're talking about. Or the actors, even. I'm just like, okay, yeah, it checks out. That's fine. Timothy Dalton, yeah. So Timothy Dalton was the uh, the owner of the grocery store in Hot Fuzz. Oh, hey, I like that I movie. Don't know if that lands, That's a great yeah, movie. He's, yeah, yeah. We should do Hot Fuzz at some. We point. should. Well, That's way better. Way better than Bond. Um, my okay. real real Let's final question. <laughs> so the rope and balls torture scene makes me feel makes me it's a good way to start uh, makes me feel physical pain every time i watch it so yeah. i don't want you to answer this question in terms of violence so what non-violent activity that you really hate could you watch someone go through in a movie and fully feel yourself as you watch it uh, i have another i have another example from this movie and that's no. something i've kept in my back pocket because it seems like it would be useful um, I when he has to vomit because he took this the the poison, and he so I guess I don't know if vomiting counts as violent, but that's the answer. I hate watching it, and I feel it in my bones if I watch anyone have to vomit. Mm. But I've kept that in my back pocket. I don't know if it actually works. Maybe one day I'll die with a bunch of salt in my stomach because they'll be like, I guess he was trying to vomit, and this doesn't really work. But in the movie, he just takes a huge thing of salt, dumps it into a small glass of water downs it and then immediately vomits and i'm like oh that's good that's a good safety tip i'm gonna remember that next time i swallow poison well, um, there you go but that's the answer any kind of like like bodily thing like that like being sick vomiting stuff like that i just feel it very viscerally i don't know if that's exactly what you're asking but no that's that makes sense yeah that makes sense i think for cool. me yep. um you know i'm pretty naturally sociable i mean john would you say i'm charismatic uh, yeah, reasonably. So I you're get, not you're not James Bond. I'm not James Bond. Oh, yeah, you're yeah. I don't feel awkward very often in social situations. So movie scenes where someone is just like, like cringe comedy is something that feels like sure. torture to me. Um, and yeah. then I definitely think long meetings in which someone is over explaining something that no one cares about. <laughs> John, you and I have both been in meetings where that has happened. If whenever I see that, like in the office or yeah. something, I'm just like, oh, I'm dying. <laughs> like, I, so. I feel that very viscerally. Yeah, I, yeah, that's a great answer. And actually, it's very, it's very good for you too. Um, I used to, Mike and I used to work. I used to work at the church where Mike works at, and uh, yeah, Mike had choice thoughts about meetings. I would say that he sometimes expressed to me very strongly. What? Um, you had choice thoughts too get out of here don't put that on me <laughs> you say that but i was also i, I think I, I let those things roll off me a little bit more um i remember but a, just a little bit i remember a meeting in which you were allowed to 
or someone asked, it's our, our, our boss wasn't there. Someone asked who wants to run this meeting. And you said, I do because they're always too long. (laughs) Okay. I was, you know what? I was right. So so I agree. (laughs) Oh boy. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, This has been, this film could be your life and we'll see you guys next episode. Vertical limit. Okay. Okay. Man, we gotta do vertical like that. <laughs> right?